everyone. Welcome to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We invite you to join our mission to love like Jesus, and you can connect with us on social media or visit our website, csvineyard.org. Now for this week's talk, brought to you by co-lead pastor, Amos Grunendijk. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Vineyard. My name is Amos, if we haven't met yet. We are at the beginning of a new series, having just finished up our Chosen series two weeks ago and having a prophetic service in between. We're going to spend three weeks on the book or chapter, Isaiah 60, and then during Christmas, we're going to be doing a Revelation series, and uh, that should be a lot of fun. But the Isaiah 60 kind of bridges us from the Gospels to the Revelation series, I think, as you'll see. And uh, I mean, if you have Bibles today, I would open up to Isaiah 60. It's very rich. If you didn't bring a Bible and want one, there are still a few on those back carts. And while you're back there, maybe grab your communion cup and the wafers just inside the bottom there. So we'll be doing communion during the worship time. I think uh, one thing to know about Isaiah 60 is that it is a vision of heaven. It is a vision of the kingdom of God come in its fullness. And I think in times of change, in times of uncertainty, in times of anxiety or sadness and grief, it is good to be re-centered on the hope that we have, uh, the present hope of Jesus with us, but the future hope of Jesus' return. And I remember uh, as a fourth grader, just thinking about the return of Jesus all the time. And so do not underestimate the fourth graders that are back in Vineyard Kids. They may be thinking about like heaven coming to earth more than we do as adults. I think I did. Uh, but one particular time that it came up is we, we had a trip to Disney World on our calendar. And I remember praying to Jesus. I said, dear Jesus, please, could you just wait to come back until after our trip to Disney World, because I was so excited. And you have, to, you have to understand, in my view, Disney World was better than heaven, than the kingdom of God. And that's partly because my view of heaven was shaped not by the Bible, but by two things. And this is where most of our views of heaven come from. The first is stained glass from the Middle Ages, where heaven is in the clouds and the angels. Apparently, we all grow wings and play harps for all eternity. And Disney World sounded better than that <laughs> to me. The second is from Greek philosophy, which I didn't know anything about. And I, I, bring, I bring up Greek philosophy a fair amount because of its influence on Western civilization. But the idea that the body is ultimately bad and that the world is to be escaped so that we can live in this sort of spiritual ether for all of eternity, that isn't a biblical view of the future or of heaven either. Now, as I grew up, my, my vision of heaven became more like what we read in Isaiah 60 and Revelation 21 and 22, uh, in that heaven became better than Disneyland, uh, but in a way it became like a Disneyland for adults. So when I think of heaven, even still often today, I think of 
living in a cabin in the Rocky Mountains, probably Montana, and I, I fly fish and catch my food and chop my firewood, and I, I turn the thermostat down to 65 degrees because in this picture of heaven, the thermostat is my own. I don't have to share it with anybody, <laughs> and there's no war over the thermostat. Um, but anyway, that, that vision actually kind of lines up with the end of WandaVision. Have you guys seen that? I don't know. It, <laughs> When I watched WandaVision, the very last scene, this doesn't give anything away. It's like, oh, that is, in my mind, what heaven will be like. And it's not totally wrong, except for in one place. When I think of heaven, I think about primarily one thing. You know what that is? Most of the time. I think about me. Most of the time when we think of a heaven, we think about what we will be doing. And the focus of Isaiah 60 actually takes the, the attention off of the individual self and onto something or someone else. And so let's read from Isaiah 60. I won't be reading the whole thing, but I'll uh, guide you along. If you don't have your Bible, you know, it's, it's very visual. You could maybe close your eyes and just kind of let it wash over you. But if you have your Bible, I, I would just recommend uh, marking it up or, or reading along. Isaiah 60, verse 1. Arise, Jerusalem. Let your light shine for all to see. For the glory of the Lord rises to shine on you. Darkness as black as night covers all the nations of the earth. That's a current reality, right? But the glory of the Lord rises and appears over you. All nations will come to your light. Mighty kings will come and see your radiance. Look and see, for everyone is coming home. Your sons are coming from distant lands. Your daughters will be carried home. And this is significant. This carries a punch because this is Isaiah predicting the captivity where the sons and daughters of the people of Israel would have been carried off. And so the, the, the separation between family members is now being restored. So the vision is that of uh, coming back together, which like the heavenly vision includes, because if we think about people we have lost, maybe not to captivity, but, but to the greater enemy, death, the vision of the future includes a reunion with those who are in the life of Jesus. Verse five, your eyes will shine and your heart will thrill with joy for merchants from around the world will come to you. They will bring your wealth of many lands. And it's talking about the city, talking about God's city, not about you. Like the wealth isn't coming to you, for you. It's coming to the city to bring glory to the king of that city. Verse 6 gives a little bit of detail that would have been meaningful to the people of Isaiah's day. Vast caravans of camels will converge on you, the camels of Midian and Ephah, because they had the best camels. The people of Sheba will bring gold and frankincense and will come worshiping the Lord. Verse 7 all the way through I've got 16 really gives other details about uh, the kinds of things that the kings of the earth would bring into the city. And uh, then in verse 17, it begins to describe uh, the makeup of the new age. 
says, I will exchange your bronze for gold, your iron for silver, your wood for bronze, and your stones for iron. I will make peace your leader and righteousness your ruler. Violence will disappear from your land. The desolation and destruction of war will end, and salvation will surround you, you like city walls, and praise will be on the lips of all who enter there. Verse 19, no longer will you need the sun to shine by day, nor the moon to give its light by night, for the Lord your God will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun will never set, your moon will not go down, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. Your days of mourning will come to an end. All your people will be righteous. They will possess their land forever. They will possess their land forever, for I will, I will plant them there with my own hands in order to bring myself glory. The smallest family will become a thousand people, and the tiniest group will become a mighty nation. At the right time, I, the Lord, will make it happen. So I was out for dinner with this really delightful young couple. Uh, they didn't have a lot of church background, and I, it, was really, it was really just a joy to get to know them. We were over at Texas Roadhouse, and uh, we were just getting to know each other. And uh, all of a sudden, he uh, blurts out and asks the question, so, like, you're a pastor. I'm like, okay, here we go. <laughs> uh, this, could, this could be anything. Uh, you're a pastor. Why does it matter what I do with my life today? Why do my choices matter if I'm just going to die anyway? I thought, oh, well, I, I have like kind of an answer to that. And he gets a little swat from his uh, girlfriend because she's like, hey, that's, you know, like that's a pretty abrupt, straightforward question. And it, it didn't really flow with the conversation either. But anyway, I say, well, I actually believe that we're on an eternal trajectory. Like the choices we make now give us a direction that we will continue on for all eternity. And uh, she says, oh, so you believe in karma and reincarnation. I said, no, I, I believe in resurrection. And then my mind filled with everything I know <laughs> about the new heavens and the new earth and the story of the Bible. And I thought, this sounds crazy. Because it's clear, like by saying, no, I believe in resurrection, uh, it, didn't, it didn't connect. I was going to have to explain what I meant by resurrection. And so my brain kind of like jumps from Isaiah 60 to Revelation 21 to the cross. to And, and thankfully, like it, it, it lands on Jesus, which is a good place whenever you're asked a question you don't know the answer to, just think about Jesus, okay? And what, what does he bring to light? And I, I said, you know, my best explanation of what resurrection is, is Jesus died and then he rose again. And he in some ways was different and in some ways was the same. But one thing I know, and I, I had heard that this guy liked to fish. I was like, I think it's a very like physical uh, future that we have as, as God resurrects like the entire earth. And, and Jesus, for instance, like goes and eats fish with his friends after his resurrection. So I imagine that part of the hope that we have includes, well, eating fish with your friends. 
and he liked that. But, but there's, there's in so many ways uh, a, a level of entering into the story and into the Bible and into the, the worldview that the Bible has to, un, to even answer a simple question like that. Why does my life matter if I'm going to die anyway? And what I think I would have maybe liked to show him was this video that I'm going to show you now. This video was shown at the Vineyard National Conference in Phoenix. Um, and I'm going to cut it off pretty early. I showed a video a couple weeks ago from the National Conference uh, from the Bible Project. I'm going to cut it off uh, after the Bible project kind of animation, and then I'll send you the link later today for the full interview that follows between our new national director, Jay Pathak, and uh, Tim, who runs the Bible project. But keep in mind, like the vision of Isaiah 60 and what's being shown here uh, in the Bible project video and how it links and connects back to, man, our Leviticus series from the summer, the Jesus, uh, the Chosen series uh, that we just finished, and looking forward to our Isaiah 60 and Revelation 21, or Revelation series. So let's show the video. Thanks. So in the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature. But here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die. But this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning, where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together, perfectly no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world, and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted God out, and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. 
And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty. But human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible was all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus. Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. Helpful? Good? Okay. 
Flip in your Bibles over to Revelation 21 now. Have you ever read Isaiah 60 and Revelation 21 back to back? I know it's been a little while now, a few minutes since we've read Isaiah 60, but try to try to remember what Isaiah 60 is saying as we read Revelation 21. They're both talking about the same city, but now uh, it's it's a vision that comes to John after Jesus like life, death, and resurrection. And there's a slightly different emphasis and a little more focus and detail in some parts. So again, this is talking about the return of Jesus, which will be better than Disneyland, I promise, uh, where he brings his kingdom fully, whereas now we only experience his kingdom in part. Revelation 21. It's easy to find because it's basically the second to last. It is the second to last chapter in the Bible. So if it wasn't for that annoying index, it'd be really like just open it up. But anyway, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and end. To all those who are thirsty, did you catch that? To all those who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings, and I will be their God, and they will be my children." And this all sounds really great, and we really resonate with everything that's been uh, written so far, like we all have this yearning for justice and peace and an end to violence. And my temptation still today is to skip these next few verses because emotionally I have a hard time swallowing what is to be said, and, uh, and yet it is in the Bible and it should not be ignored. So it'd be easy to just skip over this part, but I'm going to read it to you and give just a little bit of comment. Verse 8, but cowards, unbelievers, the corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, and uh, I want to back up. The word immoral there in the Greek is actually pornos, so we're actually talking about a sexual immorality, which is a generic term for what is made more specific or explicit as you read through the Old and New Testament both. And so uh, just kind of keep that, that in mind. It's, uh, the, the, the study of sexual uh, ethics is significant in the Bible. It's actually elevated uh, above other ethical um, teaching. And you find that specifically in the letter of 1 Corinthians. But anyway, uh, oh, here's where it gets really, it gets rough. Idol worshipers and all liars, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. And so I have 
uh, a hard time sometimes believing that a loving God would allow for the existence of evil, but even worse is the existence of a place called hell. And it, it would be convenient for me to do some theological uh, backflips to make the Bible say, well, hell isn't really real because I believe in a loving God. And yet, it's, it's so clear as you read the Bible that there is such a place and that sin really does have potentially eternal consequences. Um, and so, in part, what I, I have to go back and think about what my definitions might be. What, how am I defining love? How am I defining goodness? Am I using the culture's definitions or am I using the Bible's definitions? Because those things aren't always the same. Now, this, this idea of hell and the idea of sin is often, I think, misused by people and the church at large to, one, uh, stand in judgment over people. But let me just say this clearly. We don't send anybody to hell. We are not the judge. We cannot see into a person's heart. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, even goes so far as to, as to say, it's not my responsibility at all to judge outsiders. Uh, this gets a little bit thorny because it is certainly a responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. God will judge those on the outside, but as scripture teaches, you must remove the evil person from among you. And that's, that's again, that's thorny because we can't see people's hearts, but it also doesn't, it doesn't, like we so often do, polarize love and discipline, polarize justice and kindness, in the Bible's view, those things are not opposites. They actually are held together. And this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 in particular warns us from turning the ideas of sin and judgment and hell into a culture war. You know what I mean by that? A lot of Christians take the message and the ethics of the Bible and, and want to implant them into the way that everybody lives. And Paul is actually saying, let's just stay focused on the one place that we do have some influence. That is really ourselves and people we are in relationship with. Although um, we don't even have that much influence over those outside. We have more influence over ourselves. And so what, what I'm proposing we do with a passage like this about judgment is we actually take a moment to remind ourselves that we need to repent. The problem with the Pharisees that we talked about a lot in the last series we did in the Gospels is that they didn't see their need to repent. And the list of people who end up in the lake of sulfur are actually, it seems, taking on these things as an identity rather than as Jesus is their identity. They have not chosen to repent. And so there's a big difference between being someone who told a lie and a liar, who being or being someone who did something sexually immoral and somebody who stands 
believing that there is no right and wrong, for instance. And so my invitation to us right now, before we can move on, is to like pray to God, confess our sins, and ask for his forgiveness. And so let's just close our eyes. And I'm gonna, we're going to pray a prayer. Say, God, bring to light a sin or the sins that I have committed this week. And I bet there's something that popped into your mind. Uh, but if not, like just to bring some, some thoughts as the scripture teaches, like greed, pride, sexual immorality, looking at pornographic material, looking at a woman lustfully, deception. Did I have a conversation? Did you have a conversation this week where you just changed the truth a little bit? Maybe it was to make you look a little better than you actually are or were. And so whatever it is, like pray with me, Jesus, we are sorry for our sins. Please forgive us. And maybe if there's a specific sin, now we'll just ask the question of God. What do you want me to do to make this right? And maybe if it was like something in relationship, there's a, a step toward reconciliation. There's, if it was gossip, there's a step toward coming clean. But I would, I would bet that if you are seeking God, he would give you that. So amen. And know that God is quick to forgive. You don't have to wonder whether or not God forgives your sins. And to repent like, uh, and mean it doesn't mean that you have to feel all this guilt and shame. God isn't, God isn't after you feeling worse about your sins. He's after freedom for, from your sins. Make sense? Okay, let's keep reading. We could be here all day. <laughs> verse 22. Let's jump ahead to verse 22. Verses 9 through 21 give in some like, pretty amazing detail uh, just how shiny <laughs> this city is. Uh, it's very shiny. But then in verse 22, remember, thinking, remember Isaiah 60, verse 22, I saw no temple in the city for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. What is the temple? Where God dwells, where God's presence is, like the, the Bible Project video described. And the city, verse 23, has no need of sun or moon for the glory of God illuminates the city and the lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of the day because there is no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Where are the similarities here between Isaiah 16 and Revelation 21? What did you notice? No moon, no sun. Yeah. The kings bring in 
their gifts. It's fairly shiny, right? Anything else? Well, we'll get into those other things maybe as we go. But the thing I want to emphasize is the source of light, which in Revelation 21, we get to see who that source of light is, and it's Jesus. And one of the things that we have to keep in mind is if if we want the kingdom of God, we need first to pledge our obedience to our king. Mark Sayers says this. He's uh, one of the hosts of the Cultural Moment podcast, which is really good, by the way. Uh, It is a mirage that we can have community without commitment, faith without discipleship, or the kingdom without the king. Isaiah 60, Revelation 21, give us a picture of who is at the center, who is in charge. And this this is like so different than saying, Jesus is a part of my life. It's different even than saying Jesus is an important part of my life. Because if you have a king, he is king of everything of your whole life or he is king of nothing. There's really no in between. And that's, that's why the, the scriptures that attest to our king, the Old Testament points to Jesus. The New Testament tells the stories of Jesus, the gospels about his life on earth. But then uh, the letters of Paul and Acts and Revelation, it's the Holy Spirit's forming of a community in the ways and in the life of Jesus. And if there are parts that we just simply don't like, we don't have the option, if Jesus is king, to just say, well, those don't really apply to me or apply to us. You don't stand beside Scripture. You stand under Scripture. You submit to the authority of your king by doing so. So you can't have the kingdom, you can't have heaven without Jesus the king. The source of light in the city is the lamb of God, we find out in Revelation 21. And even in using that like symbol, we're reminded of a few things. So the lamb is king, the lamb is the light, the lamb is the temple. And the first thing to remind ourselves is that the power of God, the power of the kingdom, doesn't look like the power of the world. So if we were writing Revelation, we would probably not portray Jesus as the lamb who was sacrificed. We would probably portray Jesus as what? Like the lion with strength and the ability to like stand with regal authority, or maybe it's the vision of Jesus that's brought up earlier in Revelation, like the, the, the guy with blazing eyes and light just like streaming out of his body and a sword coming out of his mouth. Like, but here we have in the final chapter of the Bible, a picture of Jesus the Lamb. The power of God is not like the power of the world. And the world would look at a lamb and say, that's not power at all. The second thing that the lamb reminds us of is we, as we take our attention and look at our king is that the lamb reminds us of the sacrificial or agape, remember from two weeks ago, the agape love of Jesus. And I think if I can remember what I said, Like the world wants to define love as an affirmation of 
anything I believe and anything that I do, any lifestyle that I choose, and the love of God, which is the greater love, is that he would lay down his life for you. That he would call you into repentance. That he would call you into his city. That he would go out and find you if you are lost. Not so that you can stay lost, but so that you can come home. The third thing is the need that we all have for forgiveness. Because as the lamb, we find forgiveness for the sins that we have committed so that we can enter into the city. So in this picture of our king, we are reminded of how powerful forgiveness is, how how far Jesus went that we might be forgiven, but also like the world's need for forgiveness. Uh, Desmond Tutu wrote a book called uh, There Is No Future Without Forgiveness. And I think that phrase has such power because as I see people propose solutions for the world that we live in and all its darkness and all its brokenness, I see, first of all, a desire for a kingdom without the king. But second of all, I almost never hear about the need to forgive. I hear a lot about trauma. I hear a lot about injustice. I hear a lot about pain and hurt and grief. But even grief, if you guys have gone through a serious grief process, you don't travel through your grief without forgiveness. Maybe it's forgiving the person who died because of the choices they made. Maybe it's forgiving God for letting such a thing happen. There is no future without forgiveness. There's no Revelation 21 without forgiveness. I want to wrap this up uh, in talking about the kingship because it's a little bit um, contrary to our cultural values to submit to an authority that is greater than ourselves. Um, But as the reformers were thinking about how to disciple people into the faith, like 500 years ago, they, they came up with some documents that, want, that they would hope sh- would shape uh, the way people lived and believed. And so in the Heidelberg Catechism, named after the city in, you know, which country? Germany. Germany. They begin their catechism or their discipleship book by asking the question, what is your only comfort in life and in death? So it is, in one sense, a trust and obedience to a king, but it is also a comfort that we have this king. And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. That's actually, it's good news that we have a king. Would you guys stand? We're going to prepare our hearts for worship now. And so come, Holy Spirit. Some of us are carrying a heavy weights 
and just anxious hearts at an uncertain future. And we're holding in tension the, the desire to love and just the, the darkness that is over the people, over all, like over all of us, that just makes it hard to see clearly and makes it hard to love well. And so now as we worship, I pray that you would give freedom from the weight. Fill our hearts with hope. Give us a posture towards you as the king who died for our sins. Amen. Thanks again for listening to the podcast of the Vineyard Church, Chester Springs. We hope you share this with your friends and family and subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time.